Welcome to the Renegade Report. Ramon, it's, that's your cue. Welcome, Jonathan. How is everything doing? Uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're doing well. And yourself? One cannot complain. We have the, one of the top five podcasts in the country. Uh, soon to be number one. Um, Love your optimism. Or belief. <laughs> faith, that's what it is. It's faith. I believe in myself. I watched Oprah for years. Uh, well, if you believe in yourself, anything is possible, as Oprah taught us. So, this week on the show, uh, a lot of you requested this guest. Our guest is Avo Vector. Avo is a uh, very well-known uh, columnist, certainly with the Daily Maverick. He's an international speaker. He's also an author of a great book. Um, and it's uh, really great to be able to welcome him onto the show. Uh, Arvo, are you there? Hi there, Jonathan. Ah, there you go. Yeah, can you hear me? We can indeed. We can indeed. So uh, it's let's great to be with you. Thanks, thanks so much. So let's not uh, mess around. Um, of course, you've got mm-hmm. lots of money. We know uh, journalists are, are very wealthy, and uh, you've Absolutely. been storing it in Panama. It's all that oil company money, you know. Well, you are. You're a giant shill. I mean, this money. is old news. Um, and you've been storing all this money in, in Panama, uh, and uh, is it such a big deal? Um, for some people it is, yes. Um, in fact, if my money in Panama was found, then it would have been a very big deal for me. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, that, that would have exposed me as a corrupt journalist in the pay of the oil industry. Um, luckily, my uh, offshore companies have not been found, uh, so I'm all right. Um, the, it's an interesting thing, this Panama Papers. The, the problem with an exposure like this is that there are some politicians, uh, public figures, and so on, uh, and obviously international criminals that will be exposed by this. Right? And that's a great thing. Um, you know, we ought to thank the whistleblower for that. Um, but a lot of it is just ordinary people doing fairly ordinary business um, you know, that, that they need offshore accounts for. And mm. that haven't done anything wrong. And and if you and want to keep worried. your money in another country, that's also okay. No, it is okay. You know, there's a lot of different uh, possible reasons why you might want to do that. You know, um, I mean, I actually wrote a column about it uh, just this, this week, and um, I suggested six reasons that I could think of. You know, acting as a holding company for global operations because each different country has different regulatory requirements and restrictions, for example. Um, you might want to separate different lines of businesses, right? If you, if you do medical devices or children's toys and you also do sex toys, you might not want to do that under the same, under the same company, right? Um, so you sort of shield that by, by putting it in a shell company. Yeah. Um, so there's legit reasons. You know, so there are legit reasons why people might want to do that. Uh, you know, beyond sort of tax evasion and, and, and you know, hiding criminal money. Um, but it is interesting to see the, the public figures because, you know, obviously when you're in the public eye, or for that matter when you're a journalist, you need to be a lot more scrupulous about the money that you and where you keep it. Um, you know, your, your financial interests certainly are more of a uh, concern for the public. 
Um, and from that perspective, I think, you know, it's pretty good that this is coming out and that we'll be able to, to, to see exactly where these political fit all their wells. You know, if you were to hack a big bank um, and, and release all their bank account details, uh, you would certainly find people that, you know, have been running drug money and avoiding tax and, and you know, using their bank accounts for, for all sorts of nefarious purposes and corruption and whatnot. Mm. But you'd also catch 99% of the people that you'd, that you'd expose there would be perfectly normal private individuals. And you'd be exposing very confidential um, information. You know, so a, a leak like this has to be handled very carefully. And I'm glad to see that so far they are handling it very carefully. You know, they, they are revealing only specific stuff, um, you know, with people that have questionable dealings. Yeah, I had a good um, laugh because uh, um, Julian Assange, uh, WikiLeaks, uh-huh. uh, sort of posted a Twitter poll to say, you know, do you want us to leak everything or do you, would you like to just let the media continue to, ha- you know, cherry pick? Um, which no, is hilarious because I don't think he's actually got any access. No, I don't think he has access, and and um, I'm actually quite glad about that because that's exactly the difference. You know, when he leaked the embassy cables, he dumped the whole lot, you know, and left it for the media to sort of pick through it. Um, and you know, that exposes a hell of a lot of stuff that, frankly, is confidential for legitimate reasons. Um, whereas what um, Snowden did, right? And I'm a I'm a big fan of Edward Snowden. Mm. Right? He took he took all that leaked data and carefully curated it and carefully you know, published only the parts that really nailed the U.S. government in what he considers wrongdoing. Uh, and that, to me, is real whistleblowing. Yeah, so just on that point, uh, you know, just explain why you believe sort of some things are confidential and maybe an example or two uh, on things that are, are fair to keep secret. Well, I mean, in, in, the, in the, the business case, in this case, the Panama Papers, for example, um, you know, if you have uh, trade secrets or, or research and development that you're doing, right, you might want to keep that secret from competitors, right? Now, it's a lot easier to do that if you can report that in a separate company, in a shell company that they don't know about. Um, you know, you could, uh, you might want to be a donor. You might want to be a charitable donor, right, without revealing your identity, mm. right? And governments, um, uh, would you be pro-governments keeping certain secrets? Well, yes, governments too. Um, if you're a high-profile government official or a business executive, right, and you go into a dangerous area, right, say you post it to Syria or, or Afghanistan or whatever, right, you might want to keep your identity secret, right? You might want to be come in as a very low-level sort of unknown contractor of some, you know, some organization based in Panama rather than going in there saying, all right, I'm big shot from Halliburton or I'm big shot from the U.S. State Department. Please come and kidnap me and hold me for ransom. So, so Ivo, are you saying you don't want the nuclear launch codes to be public? Uh, what kind of an anarchist are you? Well, look, uh, Barack Obama already has access to the nuclear launch codes, so that damage is already done, really. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, uh, but, yeah, no, there, there, are, there are legitimate, you know, and I think governments uh, do have legitimate uh, claims on secrecy. As long as that, those claims are sort of independently overseen, uh, you know, by a parliamentary committee, for example, or by the judiciary. Um, you know, I've got no problem with governments keeping certain things secret. It's, it's when they start keeping too much secret uh, that, that there's a real problem, you know. Yeah, I, I just I wonder how you actually find that balance uh, because it's it, – well, and in terms it, of the regulation, what reg- – I well, mean, the Americans have, have regulation, but it wasn't them that broke the NSA thing. 
No, true. And frankly, the NSA thing is, is, shows that even with a fairly good regulatory system, uh, they can also go too far. Governments instinctively go too far, um, you know, and they do that all the time. And, and we're, we've got that debate now with the, um, uh, the, the, the state, the Secrecy Act, you know, the Protection of State Information Act. Um, what constitutes uh, protected state information? Who gets to declare it prote- uh, confidential or secret? Um, you know, and 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 what review is there of that process? Right. So who gets a second look at it, independent from the executive? Yeah. Right? And says, hang on, you you can or can't classify this. I mean, and, and that's really, I think, where the where the, where the important part comes. If there's a good review process, right, and then you protect people who leak it as whistleblowers or, or uh, journalists in the public interest. Right. Then you might strike a good balance. Yeah, but we, we know that doesn't really happen, though. I mean, if you look at Obama's campaign about whistleblowers and protection of whistleblowers, and then he, you know, tries to find Snowden oh. and uh, all that. I mean, there's a big difference between intention and outcome at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, and, and Obama is no liberal, you know, in, in that sense. Um, in fact, I would wager that he's actually worse than Bush well, in terms of well, military we, secrets and 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 sort of antagonism against whistleblowers. Well, we made the point that he was he's probably the greatest Republican president they've ever had in the past 20 years, probably since Reagan. Yeah. Yeah, no that's and that's in many ways it's true. If you don't if you don't look at the Affordable Care Act, please don't um, jump on Reagan's grave. Um Reagan actually did tax cuts and and Reagan was actually half decent. Uh, it's it's very unfair yeah. to compare Obama to him. Yeah, but he started the whole drug war and all that nonsense. I mean oh, Reagan is enough. as with all politicians, you know, well, not today anymore, but back in the day, politicians had good, had positive sides and negative sides. Reagan was probably 50-50. Yep, as, as, as a lot of Republicans are. You know, I mean, it's, you know, I might not like Democratic presidents, but I don't particularly like Republican presidents either. So, so let's uh, go there straight away because, um, it's interesting and uh, maybe somewhat regretful. You wrote an article, maybe, perhaps you weren't the sub. On the article, but uh, the the headline of the article was in defense of Donald Trump. Uh, I think it was a 2013 piece that you wrote. Uh, yes, it was. In which, uh, in which, uh, just to give some background to those who've forgotten or haven't read it, uh, Donald Trump uh, sent out a sort of disparaging tweet about uh, Nelson Mandela. Uh, it wasn't actually about Nelson Mandela. It was about South Africa. He said sort of Nelson Mandela was great, uh, but South Africa is a cesspit, essentially. Um, and people went insane uh, at the time. He wasn't running for president, and uh, everyone thought that was a bit of a pipe dream and a joke. Uh, and you defended him. So tell us, where do you stand on Donald now? Well, I certainly wouldn't like to see him become president. Um, look, uh, d- depends. The, the entertainment side of me would <laughs> like to see him become president, right? Yeah. Um, seriously, he will, he will be the most amusing president ever. <laughs> um, but he, but he'll also be very, very dangerous. He is, um, I mean, I hate to use the word fascist, but he, he gets very close. Um, he is absolutely not a friend of people who like freedom. Um, you know, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a bit of a buffoon, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, when I wrote that column as well, you know, his, his comment was, I mean, I thought it was ill-timed. It was crass. Um, and he has no business lecturing South Africa. Um, but what I, but my problem then was the sort of the reaction that, 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 um, that he got, you know, it went, Oh, the only crime here is your hair. And I yeah, thought, so it was ad hominem, well, but I, I would argue that it's still, that's the ongoing, uh, sort of criticism of the guy. 
uh, people have been very poor in their criticism of him and his he, yes. his crazy ideas. You know, the the reason he's gotten this far is because uh, he says something stupid and they just go, oh, well, you're a buffoon or you're stupid. Or instead of interrogating some of the stuff, I, you know, for I, I, for my part, I know Roman says I'm a big supporter, but I, I'm not. But I do think that some of the things he says are fair points or they they certainly have fair points within them that, that deserve debate. Uh, well, look, I, he's, he's, he's very protectionist, right? And he's very xenophobic. Um, you know, he... He vows to protect America from terrorism and he vows to protect American jobs, right? Or bring American jobs back to America, right? Now, neither of those are things that I agree with. You know, as a libertarian, I believe in open borders and as a, you know, as a libertarian, I believe in, in, uh, not protecting businesses. Yeah. Right? So, well, I actually think his policies would destroy trade in, in the United States. So he's, he's, he's absolutely, uh, absolutely. It's just not how the world works. But those things do find appeal with a lot of people, you know? Um, so I think there's in the media, there's been a very, a real lack of sort of engaging with why he is so appealing to such a large part of the population. Um, in the same way, maybe that, that the South African media has been with, um, Julius Malema, mm. right? Um, they sort of look at him as a buffoon and, and a radical and they kind of ignore him. And, you know, I've been saying for years, don't underestimate this guy, right? He talks to very real issues. That yeah. people really feel feel strongly about. So it, um, it sort of seems to me, uh, Julius Donald, that I agree with you in many ways. Similar characters, uh, they say things that are topics that should be sp- uh, spoken about. They talk yes. about them in a very sort of right wing fashion, uh, or in Julius's case, left wing fashion. Left wing. Um, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but essentially, that topic still deserves to be debated and discussed. And people yes, go. Yeah, I, I disagree with their solutions, yeah. but I agree that they raise valid, so valid for, problems. So, for example, in America, illegal immigration increases crime. That's that's statistically true, um, because they actually, they actually last time I looked at actually last time I looked at the stats, it's not. That's a myth. Well, in in uh, I'll I'll try to find the stats for you. But New Mexico, for example, the majority of uh, violent uh, sex crimes in I think it was 2013 mm-hmm. were committed by illegal immigrants. So when he made that I, comment. Uh, based on that statistic, mm-hmm. he's not 100% correct, obviously, and you can't call every Mexican a rapist, but that's the point. That's the discussion. And to me, that's why he appeals to people because this is what's happening in their communities and they see something and someone's talking about it. It's the same as the ban all Muslims. It's a completely illogical yes. – uh, you can't do it, number one, uh, practically, but, yeah. uh, but, it, but it's a completely illogical way of approaching the problem. But he's the only person in the race going, there might be a problem with Islamism. Uh, yes. Barack Obama won't say the word. Neither will Hillary Clinton. Uh, I don't think Bernie Sanders knows terrorists exist because he's, they, he's friends with him. Um, yeah. it's, it, you know, so I think that's why he's got appeal because he talks about things and while he's completely radical on them, at least he's bringing them up. Yes, no, exactly. That's, uh, you know, that's, and that's definitely what, what, what the media is ignoring <laughs> that, um, there, there are certain insecurities in, in America right now. Um, you know, and, and the, the other thing I think is that he's an outsider, you know, he's, he's not an establishment figure. And in fact, I strongly suspect that, that, I mean, that Sanders has a very good chance of, of, um, something Hillary in the Democratic primary for the simple reason that Hillary is part of the establishment, right? She is seen as deceitful, as a liar. She is supported by the big banks, by big oil. Um, you know, what's a set that she made more 
Yeah, uh, more, speaking in, to more in an hour into speaking to Goldman Sachs than a than a kindergarten teacher or something. Yeah, or also a kindergarten teacher makes in a, in a lifetime. Yeah, no. So you know, so so she's very much an establishment figure, and I think there's a very strong anti-establishment feeling in 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 the states, which which raises an interesting question, right? Um, you know, if if a third party candidate, um, a libertarian candidate, in this case, it'll probably be Gary Johnson. If they're ever going to have any chance of some moderate success, isn't it this election cycle? Well, one would hope so. I mean, I saw the poll, one poll said he was polling at 11% at yeah, one stage. Yeah, that's the last I saw as well. Which is one of the highest, um, you know. And that's before, that's before he's actually really campaigned. No, absolutely. And he called Donald Trump a pussy on TV as well, which was, uh, yeah. new. No. And if he can, if he can fight both and if he can, if he can say, look, Donald Trump, Donald Trump is, is, is basically a, a thug and a, a fascist and Bernie Sanders is a socialist. Um, and drop in you know, the word communist uh, every now and again because Americans you know, have been um, uh, no, exactly. to, 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 to hate that word. Exactly. He might actually have an interesting chance. Of course, he might also do what uh, Ross Perot did and simply hand the, hand the White House to the Democrats because he splits more of the Republican vote. Or what Ralph Nader did and hand it to the Republicans. True. Yes, he did it the other way around. That's true. All right. So let's come back to South Africa because some of our guests are um, – not our guests, our uh, listeners – uh, are very isolationist and they only know things about South Africa. We get some criticism mm-hmm. on Twitter sometimes. Um, so we're going to tell them to broaden their horizons a bit. But uh, in the South African context, what's what's your kind of opinion, feeling currently um, with everything that's going on, uh, specifically our president? Well, look, I, don't, I certainly don't think he's going to make it to the next elections. Really? Um, Gwede Mantasha is basically trying to hold the party together. Uh, and he'll do a very good job of, of doing that. You know, he's a, he's an enforcer that, in that sense. Um, and so, so far he's sort of, you know, kept, kept a lid on it. Um, you know, the, th- the thing that'll change it for me in, in the short term, uh, is if in parliament, right, when you vote on things like a no confidence vote or, or a, a recall vote, um, that these votes have to be secret. Because effectively, you have to convince uh, ANC members of parliament to vote against their party. Right? Now, the way that our election system is structured, you are beholden to the party because you're on a party list. Right? The, se- the top so many people on that list get to sit in parliament, and you're entirely dependent for your seat in parliament on the party. Yeah, well, Ramon and I, in our last podcast, said, look, we didn't see Jacob going anywhere, uh, just based on the fact that He's surrounded by his people. So, you know, they're going to protect them because the minute they don't, they lose their own jobs. Uh, yeah, so but I think, it, I think it'll take another court case or two maybe, and then he's out. Um, and and this, the scandals are coming thick and fast now. So, you know, I, I, really, I really don't think it's going to take that long. I mean, remember that with the State of the Nation address, everyone was still on him about Nkandla. Yeah. You know, and, well, and then… then it's just astonishing what he's gotten away with. I mean, I, I, I reposted a tweet I made in November last year. This is before Nenegate. This is before the Constitutional Court said he broke his oath of office. Oh. Um, you know, and that was, that tweet was, you know, he could pretty much, uh, sort of piss on Mandela's grave and, and set his grandchildren alight and no one would, would care. Well, uh, you know, to an extent, I think that's a, that's a, that is a real risk. You know, uh, the, the question is to what extent he has captured state machinery in that sense. 
Um, you know, I, th I think the constitutional court judgment is, is encouraging in that um, everyone thought when uh, Mokhueng Mokhueng was appointed uh, chief justice that he was going to be a bit of a patsy for the Zuma administration. Yeah, I was wrong about that. Right. I was wrong about that, too. Right. Um, I still don't agree with his social views. And I think he's made some awful judgments around uh, around rape and, and uh, uh, his, you know, his and women, women rights and, and tribal and sort of beliefs. Thing. Although I agree, though, his so, social beliefs are, are problematic, but he's been great. But he's been great from a constitutional perspective, and he certainly hasn't been a lapdog for Zuma. Um, so from that perspective, I think that's very encouraging that our judiciary is still standing strong. Um, and, and as long as we have that, I think we have some sort of safeguard. Yeah, but for the moment, I mean, he knows what he will try to do to, to undermine them. But don't you find it strange, Ivo? We're reaching a point where the man is so bad at everything. We would just be happy if he left and retired. Not even go to jail, not even face prosecution. If he just left and yeah. retired to Nkanda, we'll be happy. That, that's very... I think a lot of people in, I think a lot of people inside the ANC will also be happy with that. Um, you know, because they really do feel that, that, that he's dragging the party's name through the mud. Feels like we're settling for mediocrity. You know, it's a typical South African yeah. way. You know, we, uh, oh, well, he, he, he's corrupt. We all know this. Uh, yeah, sure. We need a court to find him corrupt of more than 700 corruption charges. And you can probably, with the Guptas, add another 700 onto that. Um, no. uh, you know, we, we all kind of know it, but, uh, we don't want actual justice. We don't want the system to work. If he just leaves us alone, he can even keep his 250 million rand stolen house. It, 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 uh, it's, it's terrible. You see, your question, your question then becomes who would succeed him and whether that would actually solve the problem. Well, Fikile uh, should succeed him. We all know that. Uh, well, yeah, as I said, will that solve the problem? <laughs> um, because your, your real risk, your real risk with any government like this, you know, is that um, a, a corrupt governments uh, are in many ways self-perpetuating. Right? They work on a small, on keeping a small elite rich and happy and supplied with government tenders and contracts. And those are the people that wield the power and that keep this government going. And everyone has an incentive inside that government to keep that corruption going. And that's why, um, I mean, you see in a lot of African countries, a lot of South American countries too, you see governments can be very long-lived. Um, although they are incredibly corrupt, and the people outside of that elite are very poor and are trampled upon. I mean, we've been whining about service delivery for the last 20 years, right? And I think we'll, we'll carry on whining for, for 20 years at the rate it's going. Yet the government will persist and the ANC will, uh, will, will succeed because, because the government has this built-in incentive to keep itself going. Um, um, and all it does is buys the votes and it buys the important people. Yeah, but I mean… Uh, I mean and, I think, and I think that's going to happen. So you're just going to get a new, a new figurehead. I mean, um, but the same sort of dynamics. But do you think someone like Cyril can change that? Because he's already, he's already like, I wouldn't call self-made. Uh, he's, he's already rich. Um, I, don't, I don't have much faith in him, I must be honest. Um, do you think if you have like a rich president or, um, or of ANC, do you think that would stem the tide a bit? Because I, I still think the network is far more important than the individual in a, in a political party. Well, I mean – Look, let's just, let's just assume, and I'm not, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on Cyril in particular here, but the, the, the dynamic that I just explained, it's still going to exist in the sense of the patronage network, right? So, so for political support, right, he might still be tempted to be doling out patronage and making sure that the contracts go to the right people. Um, 
so whether or not he enriches himself in the process. Right? So he would have to change that too. Now, I think he probably would try to change that. Um, the question then is how much, of, how much support can he count on, especially on the left wing of the ANC? And this is the important part because the left wing of the ANC is being threatened right now by the EFF. Right. Uh, people, people, are defect, people are defecting from the, from the ANC on the left. And the ANC is very, very scared of defection to the left. It always has been. Um, in fact, that's one of the reasons, I think, why they made the tripartite alliance with the SACP. Yeah. Uh, so they're going to try and stem that, which means the ANC's own rhetoric has to go to the left. Well, it's, it's an interesting time in politics because what you've got is you've got the ANC going to the left more to try to yeah. prevent voters going to the EFF. And you've got the DA also kind of pushing to the left uh, in some respects to try pick up more votes because they've probably hit a yeah. ceiling in terms of the liberal sort of centrist vote. Um, yes, no, indeed. I see yesterday they were demanding increased social grants, um, yes. which is no. not really with the ethos of their party. No. And, um, you know, funny enough, if you look at some of the, the, the municipalities, I mean, I live in Eisner, and you see in this municipality um, that dynamic is very, very clear. They're focusing very strongly on the poor parts of town. Right. And they basically assume that they've got the rich parts of town in their pockets. Right. Fair, so they, fair assumption. So, so they, they're not doing a lot in terms of major infrastructure repair, um, no, really. roads, you know, all the, all the stuff that, that the rich parts of town care about. Right, they're actually neglecting in favor of pumping money into the poorer parts of town. Right. Now, to an extent, obviously, that is necessary. Mm. Um, you know, I just think it's, it's dangerous, as ESCOM showed, to, to let infrastructure decay for too long. Yeah, it's um, also dangerous to kind of uh, ignore your, vo- your, your sort of voter base. Your base, their, exactly. Their, their base is the middle class. That, that's, that's, because you know, because I'm, already, I'm, I'm already starting to see among, among DA supporters here, I'm already starting to see uh, people saying, well, you know, um, you know, we've had the ANC in power here a few years ago and – Frankly, I think maybe it's time to put them back in. Oh, really? Um, so, interesting. So and, nothing has really changed and, and that, between the two. And that'll be, and that'll be an interesting. That'll be an interesting thing if the DA starts losing uh, some of their sort of core base, right, simply because they are pandering too much to the left in the hope of picking up ANC votes. Mm. I've always said, you know, the DA's strength is that they've shown sort of their administrative capacity, so to run uh, areas. Uh, doing things people kind of want, you know, make sure my garbage gets picked up, my sewerage works, my water and electricity, etc. The roads are decent. Um, they, they're good at that. Uh, the, the ANC doesn't particularly seem to be good at that. Well, um, in, in our town we have a water crisis and I can guarantee you it has nothing to do with drought. Yeah, so obviously they've dropped the ball uh, there. And, and I, th- I think that's really what they should focus on and the way they should get people's votes is to, to get people to to realize, hey, they – you know, if you give them the, the, the job, they'll deliver. It's a service delivery thing. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's certainly what they're trying to market themselves at. But, but we can I'm see that. It's, Sorry, it's, Albert. Certainly, it's, it's certainly not as shiny as it looks, that, that claim. Yeah, but I mean, even in, in Joburg, we can, you know, make that claim. Pick it up was on strike for a month. So they didn't pick yeah. up any rubbish for a month. And now there's bubonic plague in Tembisa. There's all sorts of issues. An ordinary 
you would have thought an ordinary municipality would just cancel the contract and hire someone else to do it privately for a month or two, contingency plans. Yeah. But no, nothing was done at all. And, uh, you know, we are still paying for service that we didn't receive whatsoever. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's very, very strange indeed. You know, that might have something to do with the uh, laws around strikes, actually. Um, that you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to bring in scab labor. Well, they were striking illegally. They didn't have permission to do so. Um, oh, okay. So oh, they weren't, they, they it, was, it wasn't protected at all, but nothing was done yeah. as contingency plans. However, what was, yeah. what was good, um, you had in my neighborhood, you had a few people, you have a bucky, and they just knock on mm-hmm. doors and say, oh, listen, we're picking up rubbish, 50 rand uh, a bin, yes or no? You say yes. So my rubbish was collected every week by the same three people. I, I did accuse them of being picking up strikers, making money on the side, but no, no. they weren't. Uh, so yeah, so the market, hey, the, free, the market came and the free market uh, will provide. Well, but, yeah, but, but either, uh, capitalism is just greedy and bad. Yeah, well, yeah, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Want to talk a bit about that? Those those, pe- those people are absolutely greedy because they want the fifty rand. Uh, just like everyone else is greedy for wanting to feed their families and make a bit of money. Yeah. But, I mean, all these people that say that capitalism is greedy, have you ever seen them refuse a, a salary increase? No. Um, also, yeah. I mean, you know, Venezuela doesn't have capitalism and they're so successful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I saw two photographs um, sort of side by side. One was the Venezuelan shop shelves and one was Zimbabwean shop shelves back when they had hyperinflation. Um, both of them are obviously empty. No, but I've, but oh, that, this, is, this is what your socialist paradise does for you. No, but that's the imperial West, obviously. Uh, they, they, I don't know, they've well, inf- influenced it, um, people not to get food. It, so, it can't be because it can't be because the Venezuelan government actually nationalised all the Western assets in the country. Right? So they basically stole all the oil assets that the that the Western uh, oil company had there. Yeah, Zimbabwe's right? done similar stuff with the fifty-one percent ownership rule. Exactly, right? And they, they run them themselves. And that's why Venezuela, although it sits on the largest known oil reserves on the planet, right? Bigger than Saudi Arabia. Sorry, right? I, I thought we ran out of oil. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. We, we, we are nowhere near running out of oil. Um, uh, that, was, <laughs> that, that was a mistake that I saw coming years ago. All right, let's finish on the socialism bent and then we'll get onto the, onto the, onto the oil stuff just now. Um, mm. just, just on the, well, capitalism, socialism, um, free markets. Let's talk about, uh, rhino horns. Uh, mm-hmm. so there was a ruling a while back, uh, I don't know if it wasn't a rhino. I think it was elephant tusk, uh, that courts sort of said, you know, they're going to open up, uh, they're going to allow selling of it. Am I? No, it was, it was, it was rhino. Oh, it was rhino. So it was domestic, what's domestic happened with trade, that? It's domestic trade in rhino horn. Okay. Um, and is that going to help us or you think we need to be able to sell it internationally? To a limited extent, I think we need to be able to sell it internationally. Um, you know, the, the thing with rhino horn is that, you know, people say, well, they're trying with Vietnam to, to reduce demand and, and so on. And, and to an extent that works. Um, and it, it can work. But, um, in the end, you're not going to kill all the demand, right? The demand is there. And the demand is going to get satisfied one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it's illegal, there's another dimension to that demand, right? Because now it's suddenly it's a status symbol because you can afford that stuff. 
Right? It's a bit like you know being in drugs and being able to afford cocaine as opposed to you know just to call crack or whatever. Yeah, there, there was um, an article about um, rhino horn uses in Vietnam, and it's actually a, a brilliant gift to give to government officials <laughs> to give you extenders <laughs> to bribe them. Exactly, as as bribes because it's such a status symbol. Right? So I mean that 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 market uh, the demand exists. Right now, the the way to 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 solve that problem is to supply that demand. But what is right? I don't understand what the big objection is to rhino farming. I, w- w- you know, you've written about this. What are what are the arguments? I, I'm sorry, I, I I get bored after the first sort of three uh, ten well, paragraph comments on your on your on your um, uh, columns. But what it's is the major argument? Well, there's a nonsensical claim that if you allow trade, uh, then if you allow legal trade, then you're going to encourage more poaching and illegal trade. Right. Um, now, there's <sighs> a half there's a half truth to that in the sense that it, it is easier to trade stuff illegally if there's also a legal channel. Um, you know, it's harder to spot the illegal stuff. Um, but you drop but, the price through the floorboards with legal trades. But you drop the price, um, certainly if it's an open market. Once-off auctions don't do that, and we've seen that with Ivory. Right? Once-off auctions just keep it at the cost. Know, the, the, that they really don't don't function the way that a free market would. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you, you know, we've seen in in uh, Kenya they banned big game hunting uh, altogether in 1979, um, and it's been banned there for 30 years, and they've lost 80% of their big game since then to poaching. Right. So the notion that if you ban hunting or you ban farming or you, or you start trading these things, that you're going to somehow inc- increase poaching um, is simply not true. Um, if you look at South Africa's own history, we uh, legalized game ownership in 1991. Um, before that, it was basically property of the state. Right? It couldn't be owned. Um, and it's with the rise of game farms and game ownership that we started trading game and so on. And that population suddenly started increasing. Um, you know, things like sable antelope, mm. which were very rare when I was a kid. Um, they're pretty common on game farms now. Right? And the reason is simply because we allow trading and hunting and, and uh, in, in, in game. But, but, but rhino horn is just, if you treat it like any other commodity, I mean, you know, you're not going to. It's gonna, no different. It's no, no different. I mean, you, you do it with sheep. It's no different right? from shoes. You don't. You do it with sheep, and you don't see sort of you know gangs of grannies with knitting needles going around you know poaching sheep. <laughs> you know, it, it just there's a few people that poach sheep, and we catch them, and we put them in jail, and that's it. Uh, and farmers basically they're insured for that, and it's it's a known risk in the market. I think you know? uh, so. I mean, you're not saying that poaching would, of rhino would disappear, but we'd drop from sort of 1,500 rhino or 2,000 rhino a year to a couple of rhino a year. I think it, I think it would drop substantially because people a have a legal channel where they can get it, mm. right? So they don't have to take that risk. Um, you know, they don't have to get shot to go and get their their, their rhino horn. Um, and and b if your animal instead of being worth half a million on the market, right, and carrying a five million rand horn, right, if your animal is now worth five million, right, now you can, can actually justify an investment in in the security that you need. Uh, so you can get loans, etc., etc. In order to protect that, exactly, because the animal is actually worth that collateral now. Right? You can't you can't protect an animal that is worth five million rand to a poacher, and it's only worth half a million to you and your bank. 
But Ivo, I'm, um, I'm under correction here, but do, do rhino horns um, grow back? Yes, they do. So it's a renewable resource. That's one way to do it, yes. Um, it, you, look, you'd have to ask a, f- a farmer which is the best way to do it, um, whether it's actually easier to breed them like cattle you know, <laughs> and slaughter them for their, for their products or whether it actually makes sense to let them regrow. But you certainly could just shave them off and, and regrow them. Um, what about the poor rhino um, missing its horn and lacking its, I don't know, masculinity or its identity as a rhino? Um, I haven't seen all that much um, sort of about whether that really badly affects a rhino. I know that there was a, a proposal by government to dehorn all South African rhinos in order to deter poaching, right? which is funny enough it won't work because they still come after the stump. Um but uh, I'm assuming that that proposal wouldn't have been made if it was really that much of a of a a, a, a problem for the rhino. Although you right. never know with government. Yeah. Oh, true. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, look, I mean, it's a lot of white privilege talk here about rhinos. Um, so, I mean, we must move on. Yes, in, yes, indeed. I always worry about people who care more about animals than they care about people. Uh, ooh, you, you're going to get some violence for that comment. Of course, animals need to be protected more than humans, are they? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, no, I'll, they don't. I'll have you know, I prefer my pugs to most people I meet. Yeah, and most people feel the same way. That's why they donate to the SPCA, not to AIDS orphanages. Oof. Ouch. All right, so let's uh, get into the environmental stuff because, I, you know, you've got a great uh, breadth of knowledge uh, and you've written about a lot of uh, many different topics. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you've got a bit of a love for the environmental stuff, certainly for presenting the other side of the environmental stuff, or maybe you feel it's just a sort of more uh, balanced view on it. So we've had Earth Hour recently. Um, you know, I don't know which number Earth Hour it was. I don't really pay attention. I usually uh, turn on all my lights at that time, um, if I remember. Um, we had Leo DiCaprio. We've we've had Leo DiCaprio making his Oscar speech about it. Um, we've had oh, we've had uh, a big agreement. Uh, what late last year? Uh, Paris in, agreement. In Paris. Yeah. Um, so we've got a whole bunch of stuff happening. Um, basically, the Paris Agreement for those who aren't familiar uh, just means your governments are now going to be able to tax you more to supposedly save the environment. Um, yeah, although the, although the Paris Agreement isn't binding. It's actually incredibly weak. Um, so it's not the victory uh, we were told. I'm so surprised. No, no it's not. Um, the question is whether countries will voluntarily uh, go and sort of um, ratify that agreement. Yeah. Um, there's there's some, some talk that Obama is about to do that. Well, he's going to try to uh, put it through Congress and Senate and, and ratify it there. Well, I, you see, I don't think he's going to succeed. No, um, he and won't. And frankly, if... Frankly, if he does, I think the next president will overturn that. Yeah. So I just uh, let's start at the point of kind of global warming, sort of early 2000s. Global warming is coming to kill us all. Um, we're running out of oil. We must all buy Elon Musk's electric cars, which run on coal, um, which is a fossil fuel. Um, so, you know, let's get into the myths and the misunderstandings around some of these things from from your perspective. Well, you know, it's it's a it's an it's an annoyingly polarized debate, right? It's it's people always say you either believe in global warming or you don't. You know? Yeah, and it's not global warming anymore; it's now climate change. 
It's not climate change, or I've seen climate disruption. Although, in fairness, I think climate change is a more appropriate description. Um, no, it is. Because, uh, because I, I mean, I believe in climate change. Um, we, we, actually, we actually do affect the climate in a number of ways. Um, no, we, don't just, we don't only make it warmer, we can also make it cooler. Okay. Uh, you know, with, with particular pollution, for example. Right? And that's not the only way. Um, in fact, carbon dioxide itself has feedbacks that are both positive and negative, you know, when you combine it with water vapor and so on. Yeah. Um, but let's, let's just say, because people say, oh, you know, global warming denier, right? So you deny either the greenhouse effect or the temperatures are warm or whatever. Right? Um, there's a lot of agreement on sort of three basic tenets, right? Um, everyone agrees that surface temperatures have increased since, 18, since 1880, right? Um, everyone agrees that humans are adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, right? And everyone agrees that carbon dioxide and other greenhouse effect, uh, gases have a warming effect on the planet. So I think all those things are statistically factual. There's no real all those debate. Thi- all those things are scientifically factual, and there's no scientist worth their salt, uh, or even most politicians, that will deny these things. Right? Where the disagreements lie right, is whether the warming since 1950 has been dominated by human causes, right? so whether we are the biggest influence on, on climate change, how much the planet is going to warm in the 21st century, right? whether that warming is dangerous, and whether we can afford to radically reduce carbon dioxide emissions and whether that reduction will improve the climate. So well, we're told, you know, the UN it tells us that all of the, the answer to all of those things is yes, 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 and it's very dangerous, very bad, and humanity could be wiped out. Well, remember that the UN IPCC is it's it's the uh, it's called the inter intergovernmental panel on climate change, right? It's uh, basically run by governments. Right? So it's governments looking at the science and making a synth- and making a synthesis. Right? Now, um, the problem here is that governments regard climate dynamics as essentially settled science. Right? which means that the funding is not very good for basic research in climate dynamics. Right? It goes into climate modeling uh, because they want to understand sort of what the future might hold, um, but there's very little funding for actually improving the understanding of, of natural climate viability, variability as, as it is. Right? And that's when you see, you know, people say that, that fossil fuel interests bias the, the your climate change research. Um, well, perhaps it does, you know, to some extent, right? Um, Private funding often does that. It directs research in all sorts of different ways. Hmm. Right? But, so does, but so does government funding. Right? And if government funding can uh, say, well, you know, we, this, this is a way for us to increase regulation, to increase taxes, um, you know, et cetera, to look like we're saving the planet, right? like we're doing something good for the people that we represent, then they're going to direct research in that direction too. So there's, there's funding priorities and institutionalization that's happened um, that, that really just sort of centers around a particular ideology related to climate change. And that's really where the problem is. Anyone who dissents from that is, is immediately called a heretic. And, I mean, I've seen that done to people who have the mi- most minor disagreements. You know, um, Roger Pilker Jr., right? he agrees that climate change is a problem. He agrees if something needs to be done about it. Right? Um, he, but he doesn't believe that we can... Uh, up to this point, attribute uh, increased um, uh, extreme weather to climate change. Right? That's all. Now, he doesn't think that the data is there to support 
climate change causing more and, and, or more severe hurricanes, for example. Right. Just for that, he's been called a denier. Um, Bjorn Lomborg is similar, right? He, he thinks that instead of spending a lot of money on, on mitigation, right, so cutting our CO2 emissions, um, he says, look, you know, the developing world needs to develop and they need uh, fossil fuels to do that. Um, it would be far better for the future of humanity if we invest in adaptation and we invest in clean technologies mm. and so on. He absolutely believes that climate change is a problem right, and that it needs, that it needs to be addressed. But he disagrees on a policy, um, on, on the policy consequences, on what we need to do. Mm. Just about and the solution that can be found to that problem. So yeah, instead and, of cutting back on CO2s, find a way to work around the CO2s or reduce them in, after in, they're invest, produced. Yeah, invest in clean technology and then, and then deal with uh, slow rises in sea levels and, and so forth. Right? Um, improve our infrastructure. I mean, one of the things you'll, you'll notice, for example, is when a hurricane goes over the Caribbean and hits the States. Um, if you compare the deaths in various Caribbean islands to the deaths when that thing hits Florida, right, you've got maybe a couple of deaths in Florida, and you've got thousands of deaths in Haiti or, or you know. Yeah, oh, but they're brown people, so we don't have to worry about them. Right, no, but the reason is the reason is simply wealth. It's because the people in Florida live in better structures that are better prepared for, for extreme weather. Right? And, and that's enough. a very important point. The more, the more prosperous people get, Right? the less they suffer with this extreme weather. Right? You can see it in, 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 our, own, uh, in, our, in our own country. Right? Um, if, if the weather comes in here in, uh, in Iceland and a storm comes in right, and it comes pissing down, right? I'm fairly fine. Right? I live in a nice little middle-class house. Right? The roof doesn't leak. I can close the windows. I'll be fine. Right? But you know, a couple of k's away from me, right, there's people living in shacks. And they're not having such a good time. Right? Yeah. They're sitting there. They're cold, they're cold. They're wet. They're shivering. They can't keep the fire going. Mm. Um, and and that really is a, one of the core problems. And that's what one of the things Lomborg looks at is um, saying, well, you know, we need to actually improve global prosperity. And that's very important. to and get to the, do that, we need to burn fossil fuel. So we need energy, to, put it that way. And to do that, we need energy, yes. And, you know, as, as much as we can invest in, uh, you know, clean energy, um, electric cars with solar panels and whatnot, you know, sure, invest in the research. But that stuff is not going to take over in the next year or t- 10 or 20 or 30. Mm. Is, anyone, you know? is anyone sort of talking about, you know, any potential positives? I, I just always wonder, it's interesting that, uh, you know, climate change is universally negative. Every part of the world will be negatively affected. But that can't possibly yeah. be true. No, I don't think it is at all. Um, if you look at uh, historically, um, there was a famous um, uh, period called the middle, the medieval warm period, right? From about 900 AD to 1300 AD, right? Temperatures rose by um, about two or three degrees, um, and fairly comparable to what we have now, right? And that saw uh, at certainly Europe, which is where we know most of our history from, saw them coming out of the Dark Ages. Right, um, where sort of potatoes got frozen into the ground, and it expanded agriculture massively. Right? They were growing grapes in in England, right, at the time. Right? Then that came to an end, right, and it uh, it dumped Europe into um, what they call the little the little ice age, which lasted until about eighteen fifty, which caused um, them to colonize places. 
which caused them to colonize warmer places. Um, it caused starvation uh, and black plague in in Europe. Right? Um, you know, again, because you know you couldn't you couldn't work the land. Right? I mean, if your if your soil is frozen, right, you can't even dig up potatoes and and, and, and turnips. Um, so this the, the the cold weather really has a huge impact on uh, on on how people live. So I've uh, uh, and is, warm weather uh, can be really 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 positive in many ways. So I've is the main disagreement between people who say we are you know we are the ones responsible and we must fight it, and on the other side you got people that say we've had warm periods and cold periods throughout history. Um, maybe we are. We are responsible for a percentage of the warming that is happening today. But if you look in the, you know, at a thousand year graph, we are in roughly, you know, there's periods of warming and cooling throughout our history. So maybe we're not that important in, in the aspect of warming. No, that's the thing. Um, you know, and, and maybe we're affecting it more than we ever have before. Um, that's also plausible. Um, but you know, I, I think there's a very strong argument to be made that look, the, the effects will not be um, purely negative. Um, for example, there should be fewer hurricanes in a warmer, in a warmer, on a warmer planet. Um, you can expand, you can expand growing uh, seasons and uh, and growing latitudes. Right? So you can farm further north and further south. Um, south isn't really a big issue, but you can farm further north. Um, so there's there's a lot of benefits. Um, fewer people die of heat than die of cold uh, in general. Yeah, yeah. This and, is and, where the balance and, issue comes for me in in terms of. And, and we, ad- yeah, we, sorry. we adapt. You know, we adapt. You know, I mean, the sea levels have risen by about a foot or so in the last century, right? Um, and and according to the IPCC, it'll rise another foot in the next century, right? Well, frankly, if you ask your grandpa, I said, you know, oh, what do you remember of your life, right? He said, well, you know, we put a man on the moon and we kicked Hitler's ass and. Yeah, uh, sea level the sea levels rose by a foot, and that and that was scary. <laughs> yeah. uh, and not such a big deal in the end. Um, although uh, you, you've got places like the Maldives, you know, saying, "Well, we we've got," which I don't really understand because if you've been to the Maldives, a lot of stuff is built on stilts. So yeah, if it rises three feet, you'll still be on stilts. Well, there was a paper that they did actually for the IPCC um, that said, "Well, Tuvalu is one of the." islands that's uh, going to be most affected by sea level rise. Um, so why haven't we seen a mass migration out of Tuvalu, uh, you know, if sea level rise is such a problem? And they, frankly, they couldn't really explain it. Um, uh, you know, I mean, the UN has been saying that we'll have 50 million climate refugees by the year 2010. Um, well, none of them turned up. Not one. We have far more ISIS refugees than anything else at the moment. Well, funny enough, they're trying to turn those into climate refugees now. <laughs> oh, really? They're, How? They're trying, they're trying to blame this whole thing on a drought in Syria. Because <laughs> uh, it's uh, got nothing to do with religion. It's got nothing to do with religion. It's got nothing to do with war. These people are all moving to Europe because of drought. Um, oh, seriously, geez, this, is, wow. this, this is... The regressive left, I can't. <laughs> this is really their argument, right? Um, the thing is, there simply aren't any climate refugees, and there won't be any time soon. You know, people tend to adjust. Uh, you know, we've got well, it's the human way. Uh, we wouldn't be here if we no, hadn't adapted over millions of years, frankly. Actually, I've, I disagree with you completely. There are plenty of climate refugees in Umschlanga every December. <laughs> yes, indeed. 
<laughs> no, frankly, and if I if I lived in Durban, I'd get out of there as a climate refugee <laughs> because of that humidity. Um, because of that, that humidity, indeed. Yeah, you, you, just give us a bit of an update. It's it's gone quiet. I mean, oil's very cheap at the moment, uh, oil and gas, and um, so obviously there's no reason to start uh, spending a lot of money looking for it. Uh, but uh, what's happened with the fracking debate? What's happened with the Karoo? Uh, you, you know, you were the main target of uh, the Karoo what action group or whatever it is. The um, treasure of the Karoo action group. Yeah. yeah. So, so what's happened with that? Uh, you know, is Jonathan Deal retired? Is he? Uh, well, you know? it's been he's been he's been very quiet. There hasn't been any updates to their website in ages. Mm. Uh, last time I checked. Um, but it's because the whole thing has gone very quiet. Uh, government still says that they're going to issue exploration licenses, um, but I've given up sort of waiting for when they're going to do that or trying to predict when they're going to do that. Do you think anyone would explore right now? Um, you know what? Some of them probably would. Um, but I'm not sure that, that some of the majors would. So perhaps Shell would put it on the back burner a bit. Because, mm. um, I mean, your big issue is that oil and gas, uh, just from a corporate perspective, are related. You know, the, the, the gas price isn't very much related to the oil price right? because you're not producing oil. Yeah. Um, and and gas is very hard to transport. It's uh, it's it's a it's a different commodity. So the fact that the oil price is low doesn't necessarily mean that gas isn't an option. Um, but what does happen is because oil and gas companies are are in in a corporation sense they're combined. You know, whereas coal, for example, is separate. Yeah. Um, they end up with having less budget for exploration and for new infrastructure development and so on. So when the oil price goes down, the oil revenue goes down, they need to tighten their belts. Um, new projects are simply put on hold. Um, you know, I know of a number of uh, oil and gas projects around the world that have simply been, been put on hold, um, and they'll, they'll, do them, they'll do them at some point when they have more money. But essentially um, you're still very pro-fracking. Yes, I think I think a, a domestic gas industry would be would be very good for this country. You know, mm. it's it's uh, it's pretty low carbon. Um, it's uh, almost zero other pollution. You know, compared to compared to coal fired power stations, uh, they're incredibly versatile in, in the sense that they can provide base load power uh, as well as peak load power. Right? Unlike, for example, a coal fired power station, which is only really good for base load. Uh, nuclear is the same thing, only really good for base load because you can't switch them on and off at will. Mm. No, a gas turbine you can switch on and off at will. I mean, it runs like a jet engine. There seems um, to have been a little bit of of new stuff in terms of the pollution sides in the states. Uh, sorry, I forget that town uh, in America where there's there's sort of water pollution um, from I th- fracking. I think there's yeah. I, I saw a headline. I haven't seen the details of it um, about uh, a settlement uh, or a court awarding some damages. Um, there have been one or two of those, and you know that, the thing is, the, the risk with any of these things is not zero, right? Um, there, there is sometimes a risk, and whether or not, you know, I don't know scientifically whether or not they, the, the the basis here is correct uh, for that for that decision. Um, you know, when I saw it, they, they had four different uh, regulatory agencies test their water, and the water is up to drinking water standard. You know, so a number of these investigations have come to naught. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll actually have a look at. I have to have a look at the judgment and see what happens. But if you consider that there's probably about a hundred thousand um, shale gas wells in the United States, mm. right, all over the country, right? To find one or two incidents of pollution um, is really not that bad, you know. And it's not it's not systemic pollution either, you know. It's it's in a small localized area, you know, and ca- that sort of thing can be dealt with. 
It's not like we haven't got other sources of pollution in this country. Yeah, yeah. But, but we already know, Ivo, if, if they found uh, gas in Valcom or Vitbank, we'll be fracking already for the past five years. It's just the, yeah, the, exactly. the, the treasured Karoo, you know, that, that, that semi-desert that's been like that. Thank you to, well, to sheep we're crazy. We're currently putting satellite dishes all over. I mean, satellite dishes yeah, are we're putting, we're putting satellite dishes all over the Karoo. We're putting solar farms all over the Karoo. Uh, nothing grows under 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 you know a set of solar panels. Um, so, although, mind you, um, some sheep farmers say that uh, you can grow grass there, and the sheep love it in the shade. So maybe, maybe we can combine sheep farming with solar panels. Right, I will. Um, but. But yeah, you know, there's, there's, you know, people forget that there's that there's 90 percent unemployment in many many of these Karoo towns. You know, that the notion that the Karoo is this idyllic place is 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 not really true. You know, it's not. Um, and frankly, it could use some development. I mean, any, anyone who, who just travels past can see that. I mean, it's a very desolate place full of poor people who don't have much, much going on to their yeah. lives. I'm afraid to say so. Yeah, we need all no, that exactly. here so at the for, moment. So, so for people to sit in Cape Town or, or, or you know, uh, in Joburg, you know, wealthy, middle class, you know, elite, to say, well, oh, let's keep it wild and let's keep it untouched. You know, I think it's, it's, it's a bit arrogant and, and kind of misguided and pretty selfish, actually. No, it's extremely patronizing. Extremely. Yeah. But, Ivo, we are out of time, I'm afraid to say. Um, just want to thank you so much for for coming on. It's it's such a pleasure to speak to someone who knows what they're speaking about. Um, it's quite it's quite rare to find these days. So so thank you so much. Oh, it's been it's been great fun. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks a lot, Arvo. And uh, I'm sure we'll uh, have you back. Uh, um, no, no doubt you'll be involved in some controversy uh, sooner or later. Well, I hope, well, I hope so. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks so much. All right. um, Any Any time. Thanks, Thanks Thank, you next very, time. Thank you very much. Keep well. Okay. Cheers. Bye. You too. So, um, that's uh, another episode down. Another episode down. Uh, a firm favorite on our Twitter poll. Yeah. And, um, well, we hope to bring a bit of perspective to some people who accused me, especially, of being a, hol- uh, not a Holocaust, a climate change denier, even though. That's getting hectic, right? There. Even though, yeah, people equate the two. Uh, somehow or other So yeah The climate change thing Is happening Are we responsible Maybe Maybe not Ironically The government doesn't Actually research Into whether we are Responsible or not And mm. um, Yeah Well we hope You enjoyed it Yeah So it's uh, It's been a good one We think um, And uh, We're going to carry on As as you know uh, You can catch us At Renegade Underscore report On Twitter Please uh, Find our guest Also Ivo Vector. Uh, on Twitter at Abavector. Uh, Abavector.co.za is his website. And obviously you can catch his uh, really informative and thoughtful columns uh, in the Daily Maverick. By now, you know where to find myself and Ramon on Twitter as well. And obviously on Facebook. We'll see you next time. Download the Cliff Central app. Available now on the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. Cliff Central Revolution. I've got something important to tell you. Cliffcentral.com.